0: corduroy trousers, dazzling braces, and a woolen vest. Hanging on a line which was slung across the front of the mantelpiece was a bright blue and red checked shirt, American style. His mother intended that her Jimmy should do her credit on his first day at school. She was a blonde, lively woman, married to a farm worker as fair as herself. "'I always had plenty of spirit,' she said once. "'Why, even during the war, when I was alone,' i kept cheerful she did too from all accounts told by her more puritanical neighbors and certainly none of us is so silly as to ask questions about kathy the only dark child of the six born during her husband's absence in 1944 kathy while her brother was being scrubbed was feeding the hens at the end of the garden They squawked and screeched as they fought for their breakfast, and their noise brought one of the children who lived next door to a gap in the hedge that divided the gardens. Joseph was about five, of gypsy stock, with eyes as dark and pathetic as a monkey's. Cathy had promised to take him with her and Jimmy on this his first school morning. This was a great concession on the part of Mrs. Waits, as the raggle-taggle family next door was normally ignored. Cathy looked at Joseph with a critical eye and spoke first. You ready? The child nodded in reply. You don't look like it, responded his guardian roundly. You wants to wash the jam off of your mouth. Got hanky? No, said Joe, bewildered. Well, you best get one. Bit of rag will do, but Miss Reed lets off awful if you forgets your hanky. Where's your mum? Feeding baby. Tell her about the rag, ordered Cathy. A buck up? Me and Jim's nearly ready! And swinging the empty tin dipper, she skipped back into her house. Meanwhile, the third new child was being prepared. Linda was eight years old, fat and phlegmatic, and the pride of her fond mother's heart. She was busy buttoning her new red shoes, while her mother packed a piece of chocolate for her Elevenses at playtime. The Moffitts had only lived in Fairacre for three weeks, but we'd watched their bungalow being built for the last six months. Bathroom and everything, I'd been told, and one of those archers to put the dishes through to save your legs, real lovely. The eagle eye of the village was upon the owners whenever they came over from Caxley, our nearest market town, to see the progress of their house. Mrs. Moffat had been seen measuring windows for curtains and holding patterns of materials against the distempered walls. Thanks herself, someone you know, I was told later. Never so much as spoke to me in the road. Perhaps she was shy, huh, or deaf even. None so deaf as those who won't hear, was the tart rejoinder. Mrs. Moffat, alas, was already suspected of that heinous village crime known as putting on side. Mrs. Moffat's aloofness was really only part of her town upbringing, and once she realized the necessity for exchanging greetings with every living soul in the village, she would soon be accepted by the other women. Linda would come into my class. She would be in the youngest group, among those just sent up from the infant's room, where they had spent three years under Miss Clare's benign rule. Joseph and Jimmy would naturally go straight into her charge. At twenty to nine, I hung up the tea towel, closed the back door of the schoolhouse, and stepped across the playground to the school. Through the sunny air, another sound challenged the rook's chorus. The school bell began to ring out its morning greeting. The school at Fairacre was built in 1880, and as it is a church school, it is strongly ecclesiastical in appearance. The walls are made of local stone, a warm grey in colour, reflecting summer light with honeyed mellowness, but appearing dull and dejected when the weather is wet. The roof is high and steeply pitched, and the stubby bell tower thrusts its little gothic nose skywards. The windows are high and narrow with pointed tops. The building consists of two rooms divided by a partition of glass and wood. One room houses the infants, aged five, six and seven years of age, under Miss Clare's benevolent eye. The other room is my classroom, where the older children of junior age stay until they are eleven, when they pass on to a secondary school, either at Caxley, six miles away, or in the neighbouring village of Beech Green, where the children stay until they are fifteen. A long lobby runs behind these two rooms, the length of the building. It is furnished with pegs for coats, a low stone sink for the children to wash in, and a high new one for washing up the dinner things. An electric copper is a recent acquisition, and very handsome it is, but although we have electricity installed here, there is no water laid on to the school. We overcome this problem in two ways. A large galvanised iron tank on wheels is filled with rainwater collected from the roof, and this, when we've skimmed off the leaves and twigs and rescued the occasional frog, serves most of our needs. The electric copper is filled in the morning from this source and switched on after morning playtime to be ready for washing not only the crockery and cutlery after dinner, but also the stone floor of the lobby. I bring two buckets of drinking water across the playground from the schoolhouse, where there is an excellent well. But we must do our own heating, so that a venerable black kettle stands on my stove throughout the winter months, purring in a pleasantly domestic fashion, ready for emergencies. The electric kettle in my own kitchen serves us at other times. The building is solid structurally, and kept in repair by the church authorities whose property it is. One defect, however, it seems impossible to overcome. A skylight strategically placed over the headmistress's desk lets in not only light, but rain. Generations of local builders have clambered over the roof and sworn and sawn and patched and pulled at our skylight, but in vain. The school stands at right angles to the road and faces across the churchyard to the church. A low dry stone wall runs along by the road, dividing it from the churchyard, school playground and the schoolhouse garden. Behind this, the country slopes away, falling slightly at first, then rising in swelling folds up into the full majesty of the downs, which sweep across these southern counties for mile upon mile. The air is always bracing, and in the winter the wind is a bitter foe, and that quality of pure light which is peculiar to downland country, is here very noticeable. The children are hardy, and though quite naturally they take their surroundings for granted, I think that they are aware of the fine views around them. The girls particularly are fond of flowers, birds, insects, and all the minutiae of natural life, and have a real knowledge of the whereabouts and uses of many plants and herbs. The boys too can find the first mushrooms, sloes or blackberries for their mothers or for me, and most of the birds' nests are known as soon as they are built. In one corner of the small square playground is the inevitable pile of coke for the two slow combustion stoves. This is considered by the children a valuable adjunct to playtime activities favourite game is to run scrunchily up the pile and then to slither down in gritty exhilaration. Throwing it at each other or at a noisy object such as the rainwater tank is also much enjoyed, hands being wiped perfunctorily down the fronts of jackets or on the seats of trousers before the beginning of writing lessons. All these joys are strictly forbidden, of course, which adds to the fearful delight. Furthest from the wall by the road, at the other side of the playground, grows a clump of elm trees, and their gnarled roots, which add to the hazards of the playground's surface, are a favourite place to play. The recesses are rooms, larders, cupboards or gardens, and the ivy leaves from the wall are used for plates and provisions, and twigs for knives and forks. Sometimes they play shops among the roots, paying each other leaves and bearing away conkers, acorns and handfuls of gravel as their purchases. I like to hear the change in their voices as they become shopkeepers or customers. They affect a high dictatorial tone of voice when they assume adult status, quite unlike the warm burr of their everyday conversations. Altogether, our playground is a good one, full of possibilities for resourceful children and big enough to allow shopkeepers, mothers and fathers... "'cowboys and spacemen, to carry on their urgent affairs very happily together. "'On this first morning of term, Miss Clare had already arrived "'when I walked over at a quarter to nine. Her bicycle, as upright and as ancient as its owner, "'was propped just inside the lobby door. "'The school had that indefinable first-morning smell "'compounded of yellow soap, scrubbed floorboards and black lead.' The tortoise stove gleamed like an ebony monster. Even the vent pipe which soared aloft towards the pitch pine roof was blackened as far as Mrs Pringle, the school cleaner, could reach.